morning. Uh, glad y'all came out this morning. Uh, the year uh, my dad uh, uh, retired from General Motors after 30 years was the year of the O.J. Simpson trial. Uh, if you can kind of take your mind back to that. My dad became really uh, interested and, and even, I guess the word would be captivated uh, by that trial. Uh, last time he and I spoke about it, he had watched every minute of that televised trial. It just became a thing that he did uh, in, in retirement, and he knows a ton about it. He, he knows just about everything uh, about it. But our, our nation became really preoccupied uh, with that trial. And then I kind of view it, and I might be wrong on this, but I kind of view it as the start of a whole kind of genre of, of true crime and specifically murder uh, that has kind of captivated our nation's attention uh, ever since then. We recently uh, subscribed to Hulu for our TV, and they have like a whole channel. Uh, that you can watch true crime and, and true murder and, and all that stuff. Uh, every year, the bestsellers, if you look at the New York Times bestsellers list, uh, probably a couple of the books on there have to do uh, with murder or true crime and that sort of thing. We are fascinated by this idea. And, and the question is why? Why are we fascinated so much by crime and, and even murder? I think uh, one reason is that it's con still considered aberrant behavior. We want to keep it that way, right? Uh, that most of us will never know anyone who's murdered another person. Uh, and, and so while our nation is kind of captivated by and, and widely studies murder and all of that stuff, most of us will never be, I mean, some may be, but most of us will never be affected by it. Uh, most of us in this room will never commit a murder. Again, we want to keep it that way, all right? Uh, so uh, so th there, there's that, there's aberrant behavior, but I think there's also a spiritual element to this, that whether or not you're a Christian, whether or not you're a follower of Jesus, I think uh, most of us uh, deep down inside of us understand that this is a spiritual issue, that life is sacred, life is important, life is full of potential. And so there, e e embedded even deep down into our culture is this idea when we hear, hear about a murder, when we hear about a crime of that nature, there's something very spiritual about it and, and we, know, we know it's wrong because of that. And so we are kind of following through into the book of Genesis and we're in the kind of true crime part of the story uh, this morning. Uh, we're gonna take a look at a murder, really the first one, and uh, we're gonna kind of draw out some lessons for us today, all right? Uh, let's uh, take a look at Genesis. Adam uh, made love to his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from among the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked on fa uh, favor with Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry. His face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me uh, from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. 
Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance several seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, uh, put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So I want you to see the difference between the two offerings that Scott alluded to earlier uh, that, that created all of this jealousy and all of this anger. Uh, the, the jealousy created anger and the anger eventually leads to murder. It says Abel kept flocks and he brings what is described as the fat first portions of his firstborn. And this is a huge act of faith to bring the first to bring the best, because if you're trusting God uh, to, and you're bringing him the first, you are trusting on God for the second and the third. That's why this is such an act of faith. When you first get your crop in and you say, God, this belongs to you, you are trusting God in a very profound way to say, God's gonna provide for me the second and God's gonna provide for me the third and he's gonna take care of me. And the text shows us that God blesses, he always does. So Abel trusts God fully and look at how Cain is described. So Abel brings the first and, and the fat, Cain brought some. Right? We want to be described as a people who bring the first, not the people who bring some. Right? We, want, we want to trust God in, in that way, and, and that's exactly what happens. So Abel is blessed, and Cain gets jealous. And this story is a reminder to me of how often my anger is about me. Now, I'll do my best to make it about them, what they did, what they said, the action they took. And I suppose sometimes some of my anger could be described as righteous, I suppose that that's true, but most of the time, in the end of, at the end of the day, my anger is about something going on inside of me. It's about my jealousy, just like it was in this story, or it's about my pride, or it's about my entitlement, or it's about my sin. I'm reminded of what James, uh, the, the early apostle, said in James 4. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Why do people get so mad? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, what you, cannot get, uh, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God, and when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. So I wanna ask you a question. What does your anger say about you? What does your anger say about you? Because uh, most of the time our anger is a secondary emotion and it is pointing to something else. So what does your anger say about you? Is it revealing that you too, like in our story, are feeling jealous? Often anger, it, it reveals that about us, that man, I am jealous of this person for, for, for fill in the blank. Is it revealing in you that you are feeling insecure? about something? Is it revealing in you that you are feeling inadequate? What, what is it revealing? What does your anger say about you? Our story continues. Notice that Abel brings the fatty parts of the firstborn from his flock. Uh, he kills an animal, just to be clear on this, right? He kills an animal. He brings the, the fatty portion of it. And notice that in this story, this is a shedding of blood of an animal, but it is not considered the same as the shedding of his brother's blood. Let, let me be super clear on this. When you leave here and go to lunch, and I strongly suspect the lunch lines are going to be short, so uh, wherever you go for lunch, feel free to get a big, fatty, juicy steak. 
Feel free to do that. It might not be the most healthy thing you can order, but it will not be considered murder, right? It is not considered murder. And if anybody comes up to you while you're sitting there cutting into that steak, like murderer, murderer, you can definitely know where they're coming from, all right? It is not murder. It is not considered the same thing. Cain takes the life of his brother and he comes under judgment. What is the difference? All right, there is a shedding of blood on both sides. You know, Abel kills the, the, the animal. Uh, Cain kills his brother. What is the difference? And here's the difference. And this is where we're going to settle on the rest of the time. As you study the book of Genesis, even next week, we're going to see it again. Repeated again and again and again is the idea that human beings have been created in the image of God. So here's what makes Cain's sin different, is that Cain takes the life of an image bearer. Remember back at the very beginning of the story, God created mankind in his own image, male and female, he created them. Human life is different, right? That God, when he creates the man and he creates the woman, he breathes life into the man, he, he breathes life into the woman, and as he's doing that, as he's breathing life, he is giving mankind unique purpose. He is giving them unique character. He is giving them unique leadership. And God views murder as the ultimate attack on those made in the image of God. And specifically what it's doing is it's robbing the image bearer of their potential. That we believe God has placed inside of every human being, and this is true for you and it's true for me, that God has placed inside each and every one of us a great amount of potential. He has gifted you, he has wired you, he has given you a personality and you are full of potential. And what murder does is it robs that person of their ability to meet their full potential, to make the difference that God has called them to make and to live the life they have been called to live. That God created that person in his image, full of potential, and the murder robs that person of their God-given potential. And so what we learn from this story is we are pro Life, and, and I think um, that this understanding of life in this story about it being all about potential and all about being made in the image of God, I think this story informs so many positions and attitudes that we might have that it might inform our understanding of abortion and the rights of the unborn. It might inform our understanding of capital punishment, our understanding of race relationships, our understanding of relationships between economic groups, our understanding of global policy and thought. And I think Christianity has kind of made a mistake in this way, is that we have developed just one lane to the pro-life position. That pro-life, in, in, in many Christian circles, pro-life just means that you don't support abortion, but I think pro-life means so much more than that. I think pro-life does mean that, but I think it means more than that. It means that when I'm pro-life, here's what it means. I am pro-equality. When I am pro-life, I am pro-adoption. When I am pro-life, I am pro-opportunity. When I am pro-life, I am pro-second chances. When I am pro-life, I am pro-people. So we don't just wave the, the placard on one issue. We don't just wave the poster on one issue. We are pro-life, we are pro-every life. Because we view people in a different way. That God has created them in his image and he has filled that person that you're looking at with potential. He has filled them up with gifts. He has filled them up with personality and he has a plan for their life. And here's what we say. Well, and we, we have somebody that we're thinking of when we think this. Well, they're terrible. 
They may be made in the image of God, but they are not living up to their God-given image and their God-given potential. So how do I handle that? You're saying they're made in the image of God, but I'm saying they're living out that image in a really terrible way. So, So what do you have to say to that? And I would say several things. The first thing I would say is that we need self-awareness. Can I say something to you in love? You too are not perfectly living out the image of God. I too am not perfectly living out the image of God. You say, man, they're not living, out, they're not living up to their God-given potential. They're, yeah, me too. Right? We, we all sin, we all fail, we all fall on our face, and we want to be careful about buying into this attitude of I'm good and they're bad. Uh, we want to be careful about buying into that. One of the great skills of being a human being is self-reflection. And it's easy to look out of the windshield and to see all the ways that people are not living up to their God-created potential. It's easy to do that. It's a lot harder to look into the mirror and self-evaluate. So I would encourage us towards self-awareness. When we think about the person that, man, they're, they're not living up to their God-given image. They're not living up to their God-given potential. I would encourage us towards self-awareness. I would encourage us toward patience. One of the things that is said about God in the Bible is that one of the reasons Jesus has not returned yet to earth and ended this whole thing is that he is patient. God is described as patient, that he's allowing people the maximum amount of time to come back to him. So the person that you're struggling so much with, the person that you're, man, they're, they're not a good image bearer. They're not bearing the image well. That, that person, the thing that they may need so much right now is first of all, Jesus. The thing they need most is Jesus. The thing they may also need from you right now is your patience. To, to, to understand that they are in process just like you are and just like I am and they don't have it all together just like you don't and just like I don't. And the thing they might need most of all right now is a little bit of patience, somebody that understands that they're in process as we all are. The third thing I would point you to is love and grace. That when you start seeing people as image bearers of God, it informs so many things. But the thing it informs most, I think, is an attitude of love and grace. That this is someone that God created. When I look at you, and hopefully when you look at me, this is someone God created and God loves. This is someone Jesus died for and Jesus loves. And God put in a tremendous amount of effort to shape them and fill them with personality and later to die for them. This is somebody that God has put a tremendous amount of effort into. And I too am called to put in a tremendous amount of effort to people that I am patient. I am loving. I am kind. I am called as an image bearer. I am called to the same thing that God does. I put effort in to people. And as you know, people require effort, right? None of us are easy, (laughs) None of us are easy. And so people require this kind of loving and graceful effort. Let me share with you the words of Jesus. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I'm telling you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise Uh, on the evil and the good. He sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, 
What reward will you get? That's minor league. That's easy. Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This only makes sense when you understand Genesis 1 through 4, that we are all image bearers of God. And here's what that means. All people have value. This is what it means to be pro-life. Right? This is what it means to be pro-life. We are pro-life. We are pro-every life. And every life is a created life. Every life is a died-for life. Every life is full of potential. This is what it means to be pro-life. And so we are called to this radical love, this radical grace, and this radical forgiveness. What does it look like to strive toward love? I don't know if you've noticed this, but I just, I think this is true that I feel like whenever I go to social media or whenever I look to culture, I feel like we are just all itching for a good fight right now. You know, you ever felt that way when you're reading the newspaper or you're watching the news, like immigration, let's fight, right? Economics, let's fight. Presidential politics. Is anyone else tired of presidential politics and it's only February? Right? Presidential politics, let's fight. And I think that we need a good fight, but I mean it in a different way. I think we need to, I think Christians now more than ever, we need to fight to figure out love. Because it is a fight to figure it out. But when you believe that every person you lay eyes on today is an image bearer of God, they may be not living it out perfectly, they probably aren't. But they were created in the image of God, Jesus died for them, and they may never express faith in him. But that just, that those two truths alone make their life valuable. When you really buy into that idea, there is a fight that comes with love. I say, I'm going to fight to figure this out. Love is patient. I'm going to fight to figure out what does it look like to be patient in my circumstance. Love keeps no record of wrongs. I'm going to fight to figure out what that looks like in my circumstance. Love is kind. I'm going to fight to figure out what it looks like to be kind in my circumstance. And it only happens when you understand the first couple chapters of Genesis. That guy that you are murdering on your feet figuratively, that woman that you are murdering on your feet figuratively, they are an image bearer, not a perfect one, just like me and just like you, but they bear the image of God and that makes their life valuable. So I think it's easy to see, hopefully, how murder would be an attack on an image bearer of God that you are robbing that person of their God-given potential. But I'm gonna be super honest with you, it's not super relevant. <laughs> if I were to end the sermon today and say, hey, everybody, go out today and don't murder. Hopefully we can do that. I know the traffic's gonna be really frustrating today, but hopefully we can all do that, all right? It's just not super relevant to most of us. It may be relevant to a few. I don't, I don't know your situation, but if it's relevant to you, let's pray in the overflow after, all right? Um, it's not relevant to most of us. And I think Jesus understood this. And this is why Jesus teaches us as the scriptures unfold that murder is not the only way we can attack people made in the image of God. There are other ways. And Jesus wants to get to the heart of this anger and murder issue because he said, you don't just, murdering is not the only way you rob someone of their God-given potential. And here's what Jesus teaches us on this. He said, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Yes and amen. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. 
But I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. So Jesus, and I know this is going to seem super irrelevant to where our culture is right now, but Jesus is going to teach us a lesson this morning on name-calling. Like I said, totally irrelevant to where we are today. Um, on name-calling, that certainly one way to rob someone of their God-given potential is to murder them, and we don't want to do that. But Jesus says the other way that this happens, and it's so subtle, and and it's so destructive, is through name-calling. And he gives us two examples. The first example he gives us is raka. Raka, right? It was an insult in the first century, and the whole point of it, 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 the, the intent of it is to convey contempt, that, that it was to insult someone out of anger. And essentially, if you're looking for like an English translation of this, it is to call someone a brainless idiot. Like I said, totally irrelevant to our culture today. Just go with it for a minute. A brainless idiot or, or dumb. Both of those would be good translations. And, and it's a word that just, uh, it's a word that is spent despising another person. And you're trying to add language to it. Like, I hate you so much. I despise you. You're an idiot. You're brainless and I, I want nothing to do with you. Uh, there's a story that I found from the first century about uh, a, a first century rabbi named Simon Bel Eleazar, and he was leaving uh, his teacher's house. They'd spent an afternoon studying God's word and uh, kind of debating it and feeling really prideful about his own intelligence and his own standing in, in the community. And he didn't, uh, he was kind of walking down the street and he saw a guy that had a poor reputation in the community. And the rabbi, the rabbi passes him in this story and says, you raka, you raka, how ugly you are. Are all the men of your town as ugly as you are? And the story goes that the man replies, I do not know, but why don't you go and tell the maker who created me how ugly of a creature he has made? That's Raka. It is, I despise you. I have no use for you. You are a brainless, idiotic fool. And you could tell that story, or you could tell a story like this. There's a conservative radio talk show host who has very strong opinions, and it's discovered in the last week that he has stage four lung cancer. And while many people are expressing sympathy, others are celebrating his diagnosis and wishing his death. You could tell that story, or you could tell a story about a speaker of the house. She is a polarizing figure to be be sure, but during a recent State of the Union, uh, she ripped up the president's speech for everyone to see. And over the years, she's been called names that I guarantee you, you wouldn't want your daughter to be called. Her appearance has been mocked, and at times people have wished her harm. And here is my question. How on earth did we get to this spot? In American culture, where we are celebrating the potential death of someone created in the image of God, 
We are calling a woman who is the speaker of the house, one of the highest positions you can attain, names that you would beat the snot out of someone if you heard them call your daughter that. How did we get to this position? We can do better. We can do better. And as followers of Jesus, we are commanded to do better. I believe the way that we have gotten here is that we have forgotten the image-bearing teachings of the book of Genesis and of the gospel of the New Testament. That person that you're celebrating has cancer, they are loved. That person that you are calling a profane name, they are created. That person that you are mocking, they are They have been died for through the precious blood of Jesus. And we have lost our perspective on this and we have lost our minds. I I have no reason to be beaten up on us, but I have the microphone and you're the ones that are available. So so I'm sorry about that because I'm not not pointing the finger at anyone in particular. Just I have read multiple stories over the last month that grieve my soul. They do, they grieve my soul. That we have so lost touch with the idea of who human beings are in the sight of God and who human beings are in the sight of Jesus, that we have lost our minds and we'd rather throw arrows than embrace one another in love. So he says, Raka, he goes on to to describe other uh, verbal insults as you fool. Um, The word uh, in this text is uh, morose. It's where we get our English word moron and where we get our English word morals. So in in this day and age, to call somebody a fool was essentially to call them a name that reflected a poor moral choice they had made. So it was to identify someone through their moral choice. In other words, that you are what you have done. And it is name calling, and it is reminding people of their failure, it is reminding people of their sin, and it is to say, you are your behavior. And we have forgotten Genesis where it says God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. With gifts and abilities and potential, God created them in his image. This is God's way of saying, listen, you are my loved and created children. You have my DNA coursing through your veins. You are God's son. You are God's daughter. That is your identity. You are not an idiot. You are a son of the most high. You are not dumb. You are a daughter of the king of kings. You are not a moron. You are an image bearer of the king. And this is your value as a person. It is value that comes from God. So church, I have really, really good news for you and really good news for me. You may have told a lie, but you are not a liar. That is not your identity. You are a forgiven son or daughter of God. You may have an addiction, but it doesn't define you. You have been set free by the blood of Jesus. You may have regrets, but you are not defined by your regrets. You are not the sum total of your sins. You are not identified by what you have done because Jesus says differently. And our culture has gotten screwed up on this. Our culture has turned, but we are called to follow Jesus, not popular culture. And so I think if Christians everywhere that bear the name of Jesus, if we would dial back from the name calling and we would dial back from the insults 
and we would dial that back, I think all of culture would improve. We need to, let me be even more clear, we need to encourage the image of God in the people that we meet, not destroy it. Say, I know God says you're loved, but you're a liar. I know God says you're created, but you're an addict. I know God says you're special, but you're the sum total of your greatest regrets. We need to end this and stop it and begin to encourage the the, the God-given potential of the people that we meet. And I think that this can look like cheerleading. It is speaking truth into people that I see this in you. You are a gifted singer. You are a gifted communicator or teacher. You are, a gifted, uh, you are gifted at compassion. And just begin to call out the God-given potential we see in people. That yes, of course you're not living up to your potential. Me too, who is? Of course they're not. But that we begin to call out what we see of them as an image bearer of God. That you are compassionate just like God is. You are graceful just like God is. I see God in you. You are fill in the blank. And we begin to cheerlead on the people around us, that God has great things in store for you. I think that sometimes in the context of relationship, this looks like gentle rebuke. I I do. I think it sometimes does that. I see this in you. This isn't God's best for you. This isn't God's plan for you. Uh, but, But it's done in the context of love and care for the person. I think it sometimes looks like gentle rebuke. And I think it always looks like grace. That we have an opportunity right now, we do. We do. We have an opportunity right now to raise the level of dialogue in this country. To show a different and better way. To be a people of creation. To be a people of the cross. And to remember, we might disagree politically. And we probably do. But I love you. Republican, I love you. Democrat, I love you. We just disagree politically. It doesn't mean I don't care about you. We need more of that. Uh, that that we, we need more of, that we might disagree morally. That you may make different moral choices than the ones that I think are right. And I may even offer a gentle rebuke at times. But your moral choices does not separate you from my love. I still love you because God still loves you. And you may be separated from him. You may be living a life that, that, that isn't the best for you, but I love you. I care about you. We might be on opposite sides of the aisle, but we are not enemies. You are not my enemy. I have an enemy and you are not it. Our world is craving this. I really believe they are. And Christianity has this embedded in its teachings that we are not to run around destroying the image of God in people by calling them fool and by calling them brainless idiot, raka. We are not called to that. We are called to see God's creation and to celebrate God in them and to raise the level of dialogue. And I think we can do it. But I think it's going to require Christians to do it, to say, man, I'm done uh, in my personal life. I'm done on social media. That I'm going to start calling out the image of God in people, not their greatest regret and their greatest sin. I'm going to start calling out the image of God in people. I'm going to cheerlead people. I'm going to encourage people. At times, I'm going to speak truth and love. Of course I am. And, and maybe it will come across as gentle rebuke. And maybe they'll be separated from me because of that. But that's their choice. But I'm going to start to operate in a more loving and kind and graceful way. And we do it because of Genesis. Part one, Genesis, that God created mankind in his image. 
Male and female, he created them. And so every person, whether they're living up to their potential, there's a little something in them that their life has value. Their life is important because God says it is. So we are pro-life, every life. But we also do it, you know, we're people of the cross. And so we have this opportunity to see that God has died for them. Jesus died for them. And that gives their life value as well. All right, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. May we begin to see people in a different way. May we begin to treat people in a different way. It is in his name that we pray, amen.